Well, as promised, uh, a series on uh, backsliding begins, and uh, it's uh, a thought that I'd had for many months going through the pandemic, that this was something that uh, probably was needed, not only in our church, but um, other pastors. So uh, the evening series is based off uh, work I'm doing for a book, so they kind of uh, coalesce. I don't preach every chapter uh, because it just some chapters don't preach that well, but they read better, I hope. And so uh, we'll probably get several sermons on the topic of uh, backsliding. And then if you do uh, uh, wish to, in about um, 18 months, a book comes out that takes the publishers much longer to produce than it does for me to write. Uh, but the sermons uh, will be following that basic pattern. So that's the, the, the when I'm preaching in the evening, that'll be what we are looking at. And how long we go, I don't, I don't know. Um, I'm sort of still not totally sure about the uh, length of series. But tonight we're looking at what is a very introductory um, uh, sermon. So it's not in the specifics, it's very introductory. And I hope we'll just set the context for... Uh, the rest of the series. So the passage I'm going to begin reading is from Jeremiah chapter 2, and I'll pick up at verse 17. Verse 19 is the passage, but just a little bit of the context so that you see uh, this is uh, during uh, Jeremiah's ministry, and Judah has uh, forsaken the Lord and is instead trusting in pagan allies such as Egypt and Assyria who could not ultimately protect them. And so this is the uh, warning that Jeremiah offers to Judah in a time of their turning away from the Lord. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when He led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for your word and ask now that we will do justice to what your word teaches us and that we will understand something of the nature of human beings, but also something of the nature of God. And we pray that as we learn more about ourselves, we will learn more about you. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Octavius Winslow uh, has this to say, and it was such a stirring comment that I thought I would begin uh, the series with it. He has a book basically on spiritual declension in the human soul. And he says, if there is one consideration more humbling than another to a spiritually minded believer, it is that 
after all that God has done for him, after all the rich displays of his grace, the patience and tenderness of his instructions, the tokens of love received, and the lessons of experience learned, there should still exist in our hearts a principle, a tendency of which is to secret, perpetual, and alarming departure from God. So after all that God has done for us, in the multitude of ways that He has blessed us, is it not alarming that there should still be a secret principle within us that leads to departures from God? And I thought that uh, if you are uh, totally ignorant to that idea, uh, if you are totally in disagreement with that idea, it is my humble opinion as a pastor, you are probably in a very dangerous place. Anyone who takes lightly the power of indwelling sin and the effects of that, not only in their own lives, but just looking around you in your own lives or looking at biblical history, surely you've missed a great deal of God's teaching in His Word. John Owen, probably a little more difficult to understand, but he writes in such a way that reminds me of how Many writers tend to perceive things in their day. This could easily come from the lips of Martin Lloyd-Jones or Spurgeon or even before that in the early church. And he said that the state of religion is at this day deplorable in most parts of the Christian world. And this is acknowledged by all who concern themselves in anything that is so-called. Basically, anyone who is a Christian will say that the state of religion is deplorable. The whole world is so evidently filled with the dreadful effects of the lusts of men and the sad tokens of divine displeasure that all things from above and here below proclaim the degeneracy of our religion in its profession from its pristine beauty and glory. So he's evidently thinking of a time when there was a pristine beauty and glory. When that time is, I actually don't know, and I'm not suggesting it didn't happen, but I don't know. I studied enough of church history to to wonder where this pristine beauty and glory may have been, but he doesn't sound at all confident about the state of religion in the 17th century. The heyday of Puritanism. Now, that could easily have come from the lips of someone today. The degeneracy of Christian religion in the world. In fact, With the death of the queen, many Christian commentators have been looking at the fact of the writing on the wall for Europe in terms of the last vestige of what was a credible Christian monarch in terms of a public proclamation of the faith. And it is not so sad that a 96-year-old woman dies to go and be with the Lord. That is, as we say in England, a good innings. The sadness is the context in which these things happen and the meaning that is associated with the death of someone who did publicly proclaim Christ in very powerful ways at times. Now, the point that I'm trying to say is that 
we may indeed be living in a time of public degeneracy. And you see this in a number of ways, especially in the new sexual revolution. There have been multiple sexual revolutions throughout the ages. We are living in another manifestation of a sexual revolution in quite unprecedented levels in terms of identities. And these things are creeping into the church. They are creeping into Christian schools. They are creeping into various other institutions that were once Christian bastions of orthodoxy. So many are aware today that there is something not quite right with Western society. I will not speak of Africa or Asia. Uh, I have my own uh, opinions on matters there. But in at least North American society, of which we are an integral part as people living in Vancouver, there's something not quite right, it seems, with the church. But then, whenever society goes a certain way, it seems as though the church is usually in step, maybe a few steps behind. As society goes, the church goes. As society does certain things, the church starts to take on those things for worse, usually, almost always for worse. And the church very often follows the public morality of society. And so society establishes an orthodoxy and the church leaves their orthodoxy for the orthodoxy of society. This is happening en masse in denominations in North America. Now that happens on a corporate level. It also happens on a personal level. And so perhaps you are witnessing the effects of this at large in society or perhaps You're even witnessing the effects of this in lives of people whom you love, where you are noticing they are drifting from the faith. They have lost some of their zeal. They have lost some of the principles that set them apart as fine Christian individuals at some point in their life, and now they seem to be coasting. Or maybe, even more alarmingly, you've even noticed that within your own soul, you have drifted in recent years, that you are finding certain spiritual privileges harder than they used to be, less frequent than they used to be, less robust, less fervent, and that something is not quite right in your own life. This series is not meant to be negative. It is meant to be positive in the sense that the series is meant ultimately to help you. It's not meant to harm you. It's meant to see, is there a problem in your life or in society? And if indeed there is, What can we do about that? What does God's Word have to say about that? And so it will be a series on the backslider, but also on the apostate. Now, those are scary words. When was the first backsliding and when was the first apostasy? Well, of course, it happened in the garden. Usually you can pinpoint any sin and take it back to the garden. And so Adam and Eve were the first backsliders. There is a quote from the Puritan Richard Sibbs that in every temptation, you must not look to the supposed blessing that you are being given. He uses an apple. Whether it was an apple or not, I do not know. But he says, Adam and Eve received an apple from Satan. They received what... 
in many respects in the abstract, was a good thing, a piece of fruit. But in any temptation, you must understand not what are you gaining at that moment, but what are you forfeiting in the long run. And they forfeited life in the garden. They backslid and they were the first apostates. That is, they were kicked out of the temple of God, of which Eden was a temple. They were the first people to be excommunicated with angels put there to guard so that they could not enter back in and eat from the tree of life and live forever. Now, all apostates were at one time people who were backsliders. That is to say, people who ultimately give up the church, leave the church, want nothing to do with the church, they were at some point in their life backsliders. But not all backsliders become apostates. Now this is important to understand. There are people who are genuine Christians who backslide. That is to say, they do not live as they ought to live. The Westminster Confession of Faith actually has a few chapters on this, and it's quite remarkable the language they use of true believers who sometimes, because of the temptations of Satan, sometimes because of the power of indwelling sin, sometimes because they neglect the means of grace, such as the preaching of the Word and the sacraments, they backslide, and when they backslide, they incur God's fatherly displeasure. Just as the thing that David did displeased the Lord, or Hebrews 12, that God disciplines His children because He loves them, they incur God's fatherly displeasure. They, In fact, they grieve the Holy Spirit who dwells in them, and they can be deprived for a time of certain comforts that ordinarily we receive in the Christian life. And we may even say sometimes their hearts become hardened. Yet, and this is important to understand about backsliders, they are never utterly destitute of the seed of God and the life of faith, that love of Christ and brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may be revived. And so, even though they may slide backwards, even though they may incur some displeasure, even though they may give up public worship and prayer and all of these things, they are never utterly destitute of that grace that can be revived. And it's important to understand that these things really can happen to believers, that believers really can go through periods of darkness Believers really can go through valleys. The Christian life is not victory after victory for most people. At some point in the Christian life, you're going to read a psalm and you're going to identify with a psalm where you feel cold and lifeless, where you feel a type of spiritual deadness. But the backslider is not necessarily an apostate. An apostate is someone who actually makes shipwreck of the faith. Paul speaks of such people. And they are handed over to Satan. John says, For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Those are people who have left the church. They have apostatized from the church. Now, 
Could it be that some of those people ultimately return? Yes. But the point is, as far as we are to understand, there are people who actually leave the church. There are people who relinquish their public profession of faith. And there are people who say, I want nothing to do with Christ. And we are to judge that as someone who is an apostate. Then there are other people who become cold in their religion. They lose their zeal and they need to return to God. Now, there's a lot of evidence for this in the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, there are a thousand and a thousand places one could go. In Deuteronomy, for example, Moses describes certain worthless fellows. That is not my language, by the way. Certain worthless fellows who left the people of God to go and serve other gods. They were among the people of God, but they left the people of God to go and serve other gods. They are called worthless fellows in chapter 13, verse 13. Coming back to the text we read at the beginning in Jeremiah's time, Judah feels as though they can receive better protection from Assyria and Egypt rather than trusting in the Lord. And so what does God say to His people? Not what does God say to the Egyptians? What does He say to the Assyrians? What does He later say to the Babylonians? He says, your evil will chastise you. Your evil will chastise you. And your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. One of the major components of somebody who backslides, and indeed of all of those who eventually give up the faith, is they lose the fear of God. Once you lose the fear of God, that is one of the worst things that can happen to anyone in a spiritual condition. You no longer believe that God really cares. You no longer believe that God will really do anything. You are holding out a clenched fist to God and saying, I don't believe that you will actually reprove me for my evil. I do not fear you. So what is called apostasy earlier on becomes perpetual backsliding in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 5. So several chapters later, he says, Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. Now the reason I say this is because In backsliding and in apostasy, while someone who is a backslider may be a true Christian who returns to the fold, at the time of their backsliding, we don't actually have any guarantees that they will return. So you can't say, well, it's fine, you know, once saved, always saved. They're just going through a bad patch. They don't want to come to church. They've stopped praying. They've stopped reading their Bible. But you know, they'll come back. We don't know that. That is why you have to strike at the first rising of sin. At the first temptation to leave God, you strike first and you strike hard and you return. Because it can turn into what is called perpetual backsliding. That is, finally, you ultimately give up serving the Lord altogether. And both are a turning away from the Lord. 
but one can lead to the other. The book of Judges is basically a picture of this, by the way. In chapter 2, verse 11, I went through the book of Judges quickly this week to just see, again, the refrain over and over. And God's people do what? They served the Baals and they abandoned the Lord. They abandoned their God who rescued them out of Egypt. And going after other gods, they provoked the Lord who hands them over to their enemies. And despite their terrible distress, they did not listen. And then a constant refrain emerges. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, chapter 10, chapter 13. That refrain every single time. And even kings take that on. So you read about the kings, and he did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It can happen corporately. It can happen individually. It happens in the major prophets in Jeremiah and Isaiah, in the minor prophets, Amos, and as we read earlier, Hosea. God's people in the Old Testament were constantly turning away from the Lord, despite him redeeming them, despite him after they call out in distress, saving them again and again and again. But you say, Mark, listen, I know this is a Presbyterian church. I know you Presbyterians like the Old Testament. I am a Christian living in the glories of the new covenant in the age of the Spirit where these things no longer happen. Okay. So you want to debate. What does the New Testament say about these realities? Well, what we find is that an entire book or two, I would argue two, Hebrews and the book of Revelation are written to those who are either backsliding or considering backsliding and devoted to keeping the way. There may be many other books that you could basically say carry that theme out, but those two definitely. So in Hebrews, you have those obvious chapters in chapter 6 and chapter 10. But actually, if you read from chapter 1 to the end, the whole book of Hebrews is basically telling people, don't give up serving the Lord. In fact, in chapter 3, the author is concerned that all of his hearers take seriously the dangers of what? An evil, unbelieving heart, which can lead people to what? Fall away from the living God. That's chapter 3, verse 12. Take heed that you do not have an evil, unbelieving heart that will cause you to fall away from the living God. The deceitfulness of sin can lead us to rebellion against God. And you read chapter 3 and you read chapter 4. Psalm 95 is quoted again to tell the people of God, do not be like those people. Do not be like them. To the churches in the book of Revelation, Jesus speaks to the church in Ephesus and He says, remember therefore from where you have what? Fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Return to your former way of living because you've fallen and you need to repent. And if you don't, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That is not the same Jesus as many of the Jesus Christ that we hear preached today. I'm sorry, it isn't. Some of the Christs that are preached today would never warn anyone that He will remove their lampstand. It's just a fact 
of where soft syrupy religion has gotten us today. In chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea, the backsliding Laodiceans are warned that their pride and their complacency will lead to judgment and a judgment of apostasy. So Jesus says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. And the cold there in context is good. Cold has to do with the spring water that came from the local cities or the hot medicinal water that came from other springs. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, but rather you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, and so I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. But there is hope, just as there was to the church in Ephesus, because in verse 19, he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So all of those words that he had just spoken to the church in Laodicea are actually words of love. So be zealous and repent. We should know this to be the case because the sower, the parable of the sower, reveals various types of people in the church. There is a certain type of hearer sown on rocky ground in Matthew chapter 13 who hears the word and even receives it with joy. But such a person has no root in himself, endures for a while, and when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Those are the words of God. Jesus, as I mentioned earlier, dealt with disciples. They were called disciples who, and here are the words of John 6.66, turned back and no longer walked with Him. Falling away, turning back. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is a litany of Israel's sins. And then Paul said, these things were written as what? These things were written for the Thursday night Bible study that you should know the history of Israel. No. He says these things were written as examples for us. And then in verse 12, what does he say? Take heed. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed what? Lest he fall. In other words, And this is a small sampling of the biblical picture, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, there always seems to be a reality that we need to confront, that there are people in the visible church professing Christians who need to be warned not to fall away, not to turn back. A great deal of biblical teaching seems to be concerned with this. Now what can we say by just a few points of application? First is this. You may be aware of the things that I've been saying on a very personal level. Maybe yourself or maybe somebody that you love dearly. Most of the students that I went to seminary with are not only not serving in the ministry, they are not even in the church as far as I am able to discern right now. One of them ended up on the front page of a newspaper in jail. Another man was kicked out for chasing other men's wives. Another for stealing from a professor. 
The point is, some of us have learned by painful experience the realities of which we speak. We've seen maybe even loved ones that are family members who no longer appear to be walking with the Lord. They no longer appear. Do we know the heart? Infallibly, no. Nobody would ever say that, but they no longer appear to be walking with the Lord. And so God warns us of these realities in order that we may turn to Him constantly in faith and repentance. Good pastoral care demands that warnings need to be offered to those who need the warnings. When was the last time I phoned you up or Scott phoned you up and scared the daylights out of you when you're having a nice quiet evening with your spouse sitting on the deck and the, the birds are chirping and you've got a nice pina colada uh, virgin and the other one's got, uh, your wife's got the one with the rum in, you know, and you're having a good time and maybe air supply is playing and the phone rings, ah, it's Pastor Mark and you answer the phone and say, hi, Pastor Mark. And I say, you know what, you better be careful that you're not back sliding. I'm very concerned and you need to turn. And he says, hang on now. I was just having a nice evening and I've been faithfully attending church and I come to a Bible study and uh, this and that. And I say, well, listen, I don't know who's backsliding, who's not. I just thought it'd be a good idea to scare you. (laughs) Has that happened to someone? Like, really? So I can say to you honestly that I don't go around scaring people unless I absolutely need to. There are sometimes patterns that start to develop in the lives of people that if you know them, you are witnessing before your very eyes. They are not maintaining the type of Christian consistency that you once noticed. That's where concern emerges. People who stop coming to church and feel as though once a month once every few months and so on, is acceptable. And they show up enough to maybe appease their conscience. And you see that there is a drifting. We have a duty to warn such people. Not to scare the godly, but to warn the lukewarm. Because that is what Christ does. You see broken sinners, repentant sinners, and you don't see a harsh disposition or attitude by Christ to anyone who is showing the type of repentance and faith that becomes an imperfect child of God. The man who beat his chest and said, have mercy upon me, a sinner, is the one who went away justified, not the person who claimed to be doing all of these things. And so a doctor has to diagnose a patient accurately. You don't tend to have patients who go in and the doctor says, listen, I'm very busy. Here's 16 different medications. If you take them all, it's going to fix whatever the problem is. You need to diagnose what the actual problem may be to provide the right solution. Second, it is important to distinguish between a total falling away and a temporary backsliding. And as I said, it's sometimes hard to distinguish whether a person is in the process of ultimately giving up the faith altogether or whether they're just going through a bad period of Christian living in their life. But John Owen has a whole massive volume on apostasy, by the way. So two quotes is sort of me going in and saying, all right, what did I find valuable? And this really comforted me because he said, this is a safe rule. 
that anyone who is spiritually sensible of the evil of his backsliding is unquestionably in a recoverable condition. So if you are feeling as though perhaps you have let things slide, that is a good thing in a sense. Not the actual giving up of communion with God, but the very fact that you're even aware of it is a good thing. Some may not actually be sensible of it, but so long as they are capable of being made so by convictions, they are not past hope. And no man is past hopes of salvation until he is past all possibility of repentance. And the good news, usually for us, because we do not know the heart, is that there are very few people that we could ever say are past any possibility of repentance. No man is past all possibility of repentance until he is absolutely hardened against all gospel convictions. And even then, it would be very hard for us to absolutely know that. And so there is always hope for someone while they have breath in their lungs usually. There may be cases that God knows where there is no hope, and that is something that God knows because God can know that. But for us, that means that we continue to pray. We continue to hope in the seed that was planted at some point in one's life. If they've left the church, that they will return. Or if they're backsliding, that they will experience a revival. And that because the Spirit dwells in them, the Spirit will enable them to return to their former way of living and indeed progress in their way of living. But by way of application, when Jesus died for our sins on the cross, It was after that that the book of Revelation was written. And it was after that that the Lord of glory spoke from heaven to his people in the way that he did. And that may mean sometimes uncomfortable conversations with people that we love simply because we love them. You cannot claim to love someone that you see drowning and not offer to tell them that they are drowning and offer to help them in their drowning. There may be friends that you need to say, brother, let me encourage you to press on. Sister, let me encourage you. Not only by just going into your closet and praying for them, but there's another aspect of Christian living where sometimes you actually have to move your lips in their presence. It's easy to just go and say, Lord, I see that person. They're not doing the things they used to and just pray for them. It's much more difficult in a certain sense to say to them, listen, is everything okay? I don't see and I may be wrong and maybe there's something going on in your life that I don't know about and you don't go with the spirit of judgment and you don't go with the spirit to make them feel awful. You go with the spirit of concern to win them back and to say, I know it's difficult. I know the struggle. I know it isn't easy, but Christ is worth it. Because whatever little that you are gaining now by turning to the world and its temptations, you are giving up infinitely more than you can ever gain. Return to Christ because Christ, if one thing is certain in the Word, it's not only that there are backsliders, but that He always welcomes repentant sinners always into His fold.
And that is the glory of the Christian faith that you always have an opportunity to say to the Lord, I am sorry, I repent. Strengthen me in the ways that you would be pleased with. Let's pray. O Lord, we thank you for your word and ask that it may be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our pathway, that we may remember that we can easily fall away in terms of living in our own strength. And so we ask that we would do things from the strength of Christ and for the glory of Christ so that we may progress on the road that leads to life. Protect us and not only us, but those whom we love those whom we wish to see walking in the ways of the Lord. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.